Hey everyone, and welcome to Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and today I'm joined by the whole training team, that is Rich Keegan, Chris Danboys, Lisa Hunt, and myself. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about challenge course documentation, the documentation that you should be aware of if you manage a challenge course or if you're just a practitioner of the challenge course. I think that these things are really nice to know, and some things I didn't know until I ended up working for a vendor. So good information being shared in this one all about challenge course documentation who would like to go first and talk about one piece of documentation then we can just go around the group i'll go with a topical one i I think you know we we may get into lop manuals a little bit later but i think a new segment of people's lop manuals in this time of the pandemic would be some form of documentation around the modifications that you're doing in terms of keeping people safe due to the coronavirus. Um, So what are your protocols around hand washing? What are your protocols around sanitization of gear, quarantining of gear? How big a cohort of a group are you working with at any given time? All those things that are within you know, the authorities having jurisdiction over you, your state protocol or whatever. But I think in general, challenge courses need to write some modification. Yeah, I think that that would be one that you would want to have documented. Other thoughts about that one? Chris was talking about the specific updates around COVID and having specific policies. And it made me think about when you add a new policy, is it based on um, thinking about the future? Is it based on hindsight? And what my experience has taught me is that it's both that you're looking at, oh, we realize that this stump is in the way of this belay, so we're going to add to our LOP that the belay for this particular element is on this side, for example. So the idea that you don't need to have a full, robust, detailed documentation for everything to start using your program. It's important to have some things in place for sure. And that as the, the course gets brought to life by staff and participants, that the way that the policies get updated based in real time. Anybody have any thoughts on what that minimum is, though? When there, so many of our clients, they're just starting out, and um, what that minimum docu- documentation should be. I have, I have a thought about that. I mean, at, as a vendor, we provide everybody with a standard operating Separate. procedure. So that's the baseline place to start is what has your vendor written down as an operational procedure for whatever that is, right. whether it's belaying or an element operation, or even how you screen participants in some cases. But like, um, and that's a starting place for then a program to then say what specifically at our site needs slight modification from that SOP to then enhance the average practitioner's ability to run this component safely, effectively, the way that it was designed to be done. I mean, that could be things like cones out in certain areas to parents or there are different uh, obstacles in the way of a hall back path, things like that, that just need to be noted. I work with a lot of PE staff, obviously, because I was in the PE adventure realm for many years. And one of the ways that I've tried to frame this to the staff I work with or the trainings I'm doing is especially for those people, and most of them are involved in coaching, in um, most, most rule books every year, um, 
for a particular sport, there are points of emphasis. And those are usually things that have come up beforehand in that previous year. And that's the way I like to try and steer people toward their LOPs as you use your course, kind of be aware of what's going on. And it could be near misses or some of the lemons and then and kind of file those. But then those are the kinds of things that you would need to put in your LOPs going forward for the following year as a point of emphasis. So your whole staff is very familiar with those aspects. Yeah, and I would say, talking about the LOPs, local operating procedures, they need to be read by staff. They need to be available and understood. The number of times I go to a training and I ask if they have them, and yeah, they'll have one and they'll find their binder somewhere, but not a single member of staff had seen it. It was one person who spent maybe a winter month when it was downtime typing that all out, and then it just got logged away because they use it for some sort of accreditation like ACA, uh, American Camp Association. They use it as accreditation use material, but then it never gets read by anyone. Like It's almost pointless having this document other than to protect yourself and allow you to do accreditation, but it's almost pointless if staff haven't read it and don't know what is in it. So making it easy and understood and clear it's probably going to be helpful too, rather than I've seen some places, the huge tomes, like files and files of material that people are not going to read, which is also not helpful. I think it's really important. I'm somewhat of an aircraft geek and um, in terms of, I don't have my pilot's license, but I love a lot of the safety factors or safety things that go on uh, in the airline industry and flying. And they go through their checklists every time. So in my previous place at Rembrook, we did, we actually thought we did have the local operating procedures and the high five SLP manual there. And before we did any climb that we, you know, it's, if it's been a year, just kind of look through that really quickly and just go over that with the staff. I was the challenge course manager there and just kind of read through the points and open up to any questions they would have. And then that could happen quickly. It doesn't have to take a long period of time, but I completely agree with you about kind of reviewing those procedures, especially if it's the first time in a year when the, or the camp staff is coming back together just to kind of hit those as you go along. Well, just on the on the concept of like how much stuff should you have in your LOP manual, would you all agree that it's better to have sparse documentation that's based in what you actually do than deep detailed documentation that nobody follows, even from a risk exposure perspective? There's two reasons for your LOP manual, and they're stated right in the ACCT standards. There's a credentialing piece, right? A documentation, the true documentation piece. And then there's the actual training of staff piece. The LOP manual should be partly the path of training your staff. Like, what do they need to know? And if they're not looking at it, then it's only achieving one of those focuses. And it's leaving you vulnerable to either litigation or someone's, you know, just questioning the validity of what you're doing. Um, if your staff aren't aware of it, nor are they following your standard protocol. So I agree, you know, like Rich said, taking it out and actually teaching to it is a fascinating exercise. And it might be something that, you know, in now my fifth year here at High Five, it would probably be appropriate to pull out our LOP manual and say, mm -hmm. what still fits and what doesn't now? What's new that we've added to the course that isn't documented yet? You know, because it's easy to just move on to the next thing, so to speak, but really trying to lay down the foundation so that imagine that the four of us left and they hired four brand new trainers. Could the new director pick up that document and train the new trainers to the use of that course? 
Yeah, and it's in, and it's important that whatever gets put in there, you are training to, and people are aware of it. I've seen classic cases of knots being written in. Someone's squeaking. Who's squeaking? It sounds like a mouse. <laughs> I get. <laughs> um, I've seen cases where, like, people have the the specific knot that needs to be tied written down in the LOP manual, but that's not the knot that people are tying. And that's a problem because then if for some reason there was an incident, people would refer to the manual. They would see you've asked them, you've told everyone they must be tying the bowline. But since then, no one ties the bowline in their course and they're all tying super eights. And so there's a there's a, there's a causal factor they can a, attribute to the incident because it was written down and not not used. It's an important piece to make sure that also what's in there is accurate to the work that you do. And so that might come through the opportunity to look at it and uh, change it because it's fluid. You, you're in control of it, but you do actually need to control it. I'm curious if we could do a little round robin, go one mm. after the other, each of us. What are different components of an LOP manual besides the element operating procedures? So, Rich, what's something else that might be included in there? Uh, if I understand your uh, question correctly, it would be something else that you would... I, I'm going to use a real specific example being in an indoor course at a public high school, which I was for many years, um, with a lot going on in that, in that gym, um, let's say on the flying squirrel, we would put down a, basically a runway path. Um, we would follow all the steering operating procedures, but was unique to that place was that here's the direct path that it needs to go back. We would put out spots and also a stop point. And that was an important part of our safety procedures as well, but it wouldn't be in your SOP manual. So that's, that's a great example of an element operation LOP clarification that's right. in there. But what are some of those other bigger buckets besides element operations? Lisa, do you have one to add? Uh, programs do this all differently, but there might be some sections around here's what to do with your equipment at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day when you take it out. Some folks include their rope log in their LOP manual. Other folks have that separately. Phil, you got one? Mm-hmm. Emergency action plan. So a way of knowing that if something bad happens, the staff can pull that out and know what to do. Another one I was thinking about was um, inclement weather, like call, like what do you do if you have four feet of snow on the course or high winds or what's the cutoff? What's your lightning protocol, perhaps? Are you using the NCAA 3030 rule or you have some other thing based on local history of lightning strikes on your course? So anybody got any others? Skills checklist. So a staff skills checklist, yep. and those would probably be broken down by skill level. So there might be a level one, like a belayer kind of level, and then a level two, which might be more of a supervisor level cut. I've seen other things in LOP manuals that think could also not belong there, that could live elsewhere, such as staff benefits or anything about sort of the hiring process, dress code, what to wear. Um, another thing I see a lot in LOP manuals is lesson plans. Um, and there's value in all that documentation. I think it can, it, it does create a little bit con- of confusion. Oftentimes we as trainers are in the position of looking at an LOP manual to help us get ready for bringing a course to life. And sometimes we have to sort through and get, you know, get to the, the meat of it. Yeah. I tend to like programs that separate out their curriculum and their program design information separately from their challenge course operations. Um, You know, it's a little bit like getting the owner's manual to your new lawnmower. 
there's the operational lawnmower, but nowhere does it tell you actually how to mow your lawn. Like, do you do it in X's? Do you do it up wall one side? Do you do one strip and then rake that and then do another strip and rake that? That's part of the curriculum that I think you have to figure out. And sometimes those two separate pieces really are nicely separated, I think, personally for me. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that sometimes people... I've seen, I've seen uh, um, inspection sheets in there, so monthly internal inspection sheets of the course. So it's a checkbox sheet where it's checking your gear, checking harnesses, helmets, are they all there? I've also seen inventory lists, whether yeah. or not they, they, they serve a purpose. I've enjoyed when I've seen them in there. I think that shows good organization and an understanding of, your, of the gear. And the monthly inspection thing internally is, is helpful probably for our inspectors, but it's also helpful for me in terms of a training. Like they know their course. If they know that their level two staff has at one point gone up and checked stuff. This episode of Vertical Playpen is supported by Sticker Mule. Wasting time sucks. That's why Sticker Mule relentlessly focuses on making it fast and easy to order custom products. Order in seconds and get your products in days, free proofs, free artwork help, free shipping, and fast turnaround are why people love Sticker Mule. I can say, as the host of this podcast, that I 100% agree with all of those statements. If you head over to our Instagram page, at vertical playpen you'll see images of both the pins and the stickers that they've provided us and you'll also be notified when there is a giveaway to win yourself both a sticker and a pin courtesy of sticker mule once again thank you to them you can find them at stickermule.com that's s-t-i-c-k-e-r-m-u-l-e.com and back to the episode all right so i would like to throw out this question to the group because it's the most common question I've been getting, especially with new, new courses when I'm at a training is rope logs. Why do we need to do them? If we know rope does not fail and we understand that uh, we inspect them every time we use the rope, uh, why, in the, why in the field do we need to keep a rope log? Great question. I think the norm still in the field is that yeah. people are doing rope logs you don't want to be the non-normative one in a court of law suggesting that because you didn't have time or it felt like busy work because quite honestly, a lot of this feels like busy work and some of it is very valuable, both from a practitioner standpoint in terms of training and, you know, keeping staff up to date. Some of it is very helpful if something goes badly that you can produce documentation. So in the larger world of work at height, in general, documentation of what's known as PPE, personal protective equipment, of which ropes would be considered part of that. It would be a hard in a court of law to say, yeah, we get an annual inspection on it and uh, that's it. There's a good balance there. Yeah, that the, the tactile and visual mm-hmm. inspection daily is most critical, right? You don't wanna know that a rope got chewed by a mouse halfway through while someone's in the air because you didn't check it on the ground. But how hard is it just to check in that box that you inspected that rope that day? It's probably not that hard. I think that there's that, uh, we've referenced it before, I think maybe in the risk homeostasis episode about um, 
The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. Great book. But it talks about the benefit of doing something like that, even beyond the act. What is it serving? There's the, the checking off, the making sure the gear is there, that you put it back in the shed and then you've logged. There's something that is very gets repetitive and it helps you keep in the flow so you don't get into situations where you lose rope, you put it in the wrong place, you didn't store it away. Because the rope log is often stored in the location where the ropes are stored, that's also a good marker point for remembering to do certain things and i've referenced to people as well there is a there is a nice mark to be able to say how much a rope did get used in a certain day and if the next person comes in and then inspects and they notice a soft spot was it noticed prior and how much did it use get used between the first time and the next time you're inspecting it will identify a time that might give you some information like a like a sherlock holmes detective work to figure out where the incident occurred. Like if there's some rub and that rope got used on that element that mm-hmm. day, especially if you're in a course where you use the same length rope or the exact same rope for multiple elements and you don't have yeah. a specific rope assigned, then you seeing that there was rub and then you look at the rope log and say, oh, it was used on the two line might give you some awareness that maybe it was an ATC there yeah. or might be the SRD that had something wrong with it that's causing some fraying edge. So there is some detective work that I think that's helpful in the in the rope logging beyond the the need or the necessity to do it because of the norms of the industry. Since we were talking about sort of rope logs, I think inspection reports, it's rare now for a program to not get that annual inspection. What unfortunately is all too common is the challenge course manager gets that report and then files it. And the rest of the staff working on the course never know what's in that report. Now, they don't necessarily need to have a copy of it, but they do need to be informed of things like, you know, the whale watch fails because of the rotten decking boards. And until that gets repaired, it needs to be closed. Or the backup cables on the two-line bridge are getting overgrown. That's good to know for staff who are going up there and perhaps relying on those as a positioning tool when they're working at height, knowing you can't clip into it because it's too tight, even though the element doesn't fail, would be helpful prior to going to height. So I think the sharing of the information in the annual inspection report from the vendor is something that a lot of programs don't take that next step and do. Yeah, we've got classic stories of, of us finding finding inspection reports stuffed in drawers or under table legs. And so they're not useful if they're not being read. So having yeah. people read them and other staff read them it's just it's just more the more more you know it's not just to check a, a, a box checked to say oh, i don't have to worry about this anymore and normally the information in an inspection report is pretty helpful and it's helpful for a lot of people to know and not be aware of so that even a staff member goes and doesn't grab the harnesses that are retired because you're like oh i didn't know All right how do you know if no one's told you and there's a documentation that's telling you it's not it's not being seen or read so yeah, if you want to learn more about inspections, you can always check out our previous episode, Inspections, where I was talking to Todd and Ian about inspections. One other thing I have on my uh, on my list is the challenge course portfolio. And this is something that I, I've found that a lot of people are unaware exists or that they should be filling that in. A lot of the times when... And we referenced, uh, we've talked about in our episode about certification, the need to present that uh, challenge course portfolio if you want to receive a certification. And a lot of times when I bring it up in certifications, people don't have them. And they may have been in the industry for a long time. So someone want to talk about uh, 
a challenge course portfolio, what the benefits of that are and what it is, what it entails? I can start from the big picture and then hand it off to drill down if that works. And I mentioned this in a previous episode. It's around, so we've been talking about really two types of documentation, one way that we could parse it out. And one is sort of documentation that's related to a specific site and then documentation that's related to a specific individual. And so what we're talking about is documentation that you're going to take with you maybe no matter where you work. It may be required by one employer, but it's my opinion, and I think that we'll talk about this more, that it's helpful to have your own history, a log of your challenge course professional history to, to, to take with you from site to site. So and that's really you taking ownership of this job that you have as a professional practice. And so there's lots of different ways you can keep a portfolio. It can be as simple as a a notebook that has a list of program days and what the type of course was. You can also, on the other extreme, download a template from acctinfo.org, which is what I did many years ago. And I followed the tabs because it allows me to keep track of more than just the workshops that I've done. It's got different types. Um, and so I'd love for one of you to sort of go into some more detail. I think the, the clients that I've um, been with, and again, I'll go from the school setting if um, they usually are not aware of that. But if they're not getting certification, which is not a requirement within the field, it's a nice thing to do. But I've got so much other paperwork, I don't really think I need to spend the time to do that and to log it that particular way on that particular sheet. What I've tried to remind teachers of is that, well, do you have a lesson plan? Do you have a plan book? That's another example of how you can keep track of uh, the kind of programming you've been doing, at least in a school setting. In the outdoor education, experiential education world, whether you're a whitewater rafting guide or a right. rock guide or a challenge course practitioner, the idea of having a professional portfolio that you yeah, can yeah. show both your, your history of trainings that you've attended, the amount of facilitation or delivery, program delivery that you have supported or co-led or led alone mm-hmm. um, is two big buckets that you really need to document. If you're a trainer also, or a program leader at a site, and you are training others at your site, you need to have another tab that's documenting when did I train my staff. Um, And then there's all kinds of other nice little tabs in the ACT one, you can have one around conferences attended, you could have one in conferences presented at, perhaps uh, books that you've written or uh, documentation you've created, you know, there's lots of ways to, to parse that out. Um, but I think the two big ones are, what are the trainings you've attended to increase your knowledge base? And then what's your delivery been like? Who have you been delivering to? The kinds of populations, the length of time, the style of course, you know, is, is it a dynamic course? Are you working on a couple of, maybe you're a contract facilitator and you're working you know, two days a week on a, on a zip line tour and another two days a week you're working at a school and you use it in an educational setting. Knowing those different hours are really important. And those will play out as you apply for different levels of certification. I know as a person who does a lot of the vetting of practitioners at High Five who are applying for certification, if they don't have a portfolio, they don't get their certification until they do. (laughs) So just the act of having one is the basic first step. And then do you qualify? 
and you can go to our website page under practitioner certification to see the different levels of experience if you're interested in those. But really, that's what I'm betting. I'm using that tool, your portfolio, to match you up against those different levels. And people will ask the question like, oh, I don't have one and I've worked, I've been doing this for 10 years. What do I do? Yeah. Well, the reality is you, we're not going to meticulously check you don't with your empl- previous employees and all the places you've worked. And you didn't work with that group. You didn't do those eight hours. But average out as best you can the, the amount of time you've done. Yeah. So if you've worked intermittently for a full year, it might be 500 hours. If you've worked a full summer, uh, six days a week eight to five, then you're probably doing us 500 hours in that summer alone. So there was a way to average that out and yeah. then get into the habit of, uh, of logging the specifics, but you can backlog a lot of them by just averaging out those hours. And that will ease some of the tension because I know every single one of us finds the filling out of the challenge course portfolio, a oh, real burdensome experience <laughs> because we forget to do it. And we have like a, a whole year to catch up of work to try to log. So trying to get used to filling that in, you'll pay, it will be better in the, in the long term. I think another benefit, if, if, uh, the, uh, the idea of risk management isn't strong enough to document your information, the idea of employment advantage should. So it's a rare program that's not going to ask for your ACT portfolio if you're hired, particularly for a supervisory position or a level two position. So if you've got a really high quality, easy to read and comprehend portfolio, um, that is going to be as equally as important as your resume and your past experience um, when hiring decisions get made. So hopefully that's another reason for doing it. So students right now, if you're listening to this and you're about mm-hmm. to think you want to get into this industry, you go to acctinfo.org, find that portfolio and start filling it in. Yeah, it will certainly help you in the long term to find employment. It helped me. So I can I can attest to the power of that. It often gets referred to ahead of your resume in this industry of experiential education, experience talks. So having that written down is helpful. All right, awesome. So uh, those are the some documentation we went over. To, uh, over. So just to recap, we talked about local operating procedures. We talked about uh, rope logs, inspection reports, and also the challenge course portfolio. If you'd like to ask any one of us questions about this, we're the training team. We're the right people to answer those questions. You can email us at our first initial last name at highfiveadventure.org. So that's P. Brown. R. Keegan, C. Danboys, or L. Hunt at highfiveadventure.org. Or you can just check out our website, highfiveadventure.org, and you'll find all the information there. Look at the resources tab, check out the training tabs. There's lots of information for you to find on our website related to all of these. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playtime. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting Article Papa Guy. <laughs>
As a reminder, please, if you could continue to share the podcast with any educators that you think would find this beneficial, as well as letting me know what information you'd like me to share about and who potentially you'd like me to interview at podcast at H-I-G-H, the number five, adventure.org. Thank you so much. Stay safe and stay connected.